Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Four years ago, some of you were celebrating because something was made legal in this country. You know what I'm talking about. Cannabis was legalized October the 17th, 2018. Well, that's given us four years now to get a handle on the good, the bad, and anything else that is going on with this availability. I want to bring in uh, James McKillop, Dr. James McKillop. He is the, he's a professor at Mac. He's the director of the Peter Bora Center for Addictions Research. And in one of the all-time ironies of ironies, today is his birthday. A man who studies cannabis shares a birthday with the legalization. I guess happy birthday and congratulations. I, I'm not sure what the appropriate term is. Thanks a lot, Scott. We have now had four years to look at this. I remember a piece, and I pulled it up just before we came on here, uh, a piece that was in The Conversation, the online magazine last year at the same time. And it was saying it's shocking how little we still know or how much we don't know yet about the effects of cannabis three years in. Is it a lot better a fourth year in? It's definitely getting better. I think that we knew how momentous a change it would be. And I think we also knew how long it would take to really know the impacts. And I think now things are coming better into focus, but it is still taking time. What, okay. So what do we know now? Now, now that we can have a broader picture, is this something that we should be fully content is absolutely safe in every way. And we should be happy with that. Are there greater concerns that we didn't look at, or is it a neutral? I don't think we should uh, by any means think that uh, this is uh, uh, something we shouldn't be concerned about. But I don't think we ever thought that that was the case. I think that it's a matter of really being um, critical thinkers about the benefits and the costs of legalization. And so I think that to start with, what we know is that the sky hasn't fallen and um, some of the potentially catastrophic outcomes, really dramatic spikes in use, for example, haven't come to pass. Um, but there have also been some notable trends in terms of increases in use and some reports of increases in, for example, unintended poisonings and uh, increased car accidents that definitely give me at least pause uh, and cause for concern. Okay, the car accidents I can understand because there's a lot of people who have made the case that it doesn't affect me when I drive, regardless. Um, that I get. The poisonings, though, I didn't expect you to say that. How? What is that about? Well, I think that the, you know, it, it's a very dramatic term, unintended poisonings, but basically what it refers to is accidental overdose or overconsumption events uh, in which people, just as I said, overconsume and the, the a uh, good thing about cannabis is that there's no really well-established lethal dose. It's not like opioids or alcohol in which a person can overconsume and ultimately experience respiratory depression and death, but it can still make people quite sick. And in this case, what we're talking about are instances of people often uh, overconsuming uh, edible products. Mm. And uh, this, this can be especially a problem in children uh, who may see cannabis edibles that look like gummies or candies and then uh, inadvertently consume a psychoactive drug. Well, it's a really interesting thing that you talk about younger people and even talk about usage because Bernie Sanders, who, you know, very liberal senator from Vermont, everyone knows who Bernie Sanders is. Uh, he has come out in favor. Now, this is in the States, obviously. He has come out in favor of legalizing cannabis in every state. However, 
even he has said, but I do have some concerns because every event I go to, it's all the underage people who are asking me about this. Have we got any numbers that show what's happening? Because I think if you're over 25, when people say their brain is formed and everything else, I think most people say you're an adult, you do what you want. But do we have any kind of numbers about the younger people and how usage has happened since it's become legal here in Canada? We don't have what I would consider definitive data at this point, but there have been a number of uh, studies that have looked cross-sectionally over time at young people. And this is, in my opinion, where uh, it, it is kind of a good news story to the extent that we have not seen dramatic upticks in rates of cannabis use. Now, that's not to say that we've seen dramatic decreases either. But I think that anyone you ask on the street would say, have you noticed increases in, uh, for example, cannabis stores? And they would answer yes. And in that context, uh, even with the, the liberalization of legal cannabis, there doesn't seem to have been a dramatic increase in youth use. Now, again, I put a pretty big asterisk there because I think that uh, you, you need to have multiple years of data to really be confident but the early studies don't tell a, a very scary story to me in terms of the aggregate patterns. What about the legal, legal stuff versus the non-legal? One of the big pushes behind this was this was going to get rid of the black market and presumably some of the, if there is such a thing as bad cannabis, it's going to be legal and it's going to be controlled and we're going to know what you're buying. Do we know if that's actually happened? Do we know if the black market has disappeared? I think that it's a really hard question to answer because the nature of the illegal contraband market is that it is unmeasurable to a certain extent. But what we can do is sort of look at the opposite patterns of data. What do the patterns of sales look like of legal cannabis? And the good news on that front is that we have seen a steady increase in retail sales uh, month after month nationally and provincially in a way that suggests that there is a kind of continuous uh, expansion of the legal market that when considered in combination with only small changes in, in what people are telling us in terms of their use suggests that ultimately the uh, illegal market is being squeezed out. And so nowadays it's about um, 300 to 400 million dollars in monthly legal cannabis sales, um, which is a dramatic increase from when legalization first happened and suggests that a, a, a thriving legal market in some ways is bad news for uh, an, uh, an illegal market and good news on the whole for the regulatory framework. You study this all the time. Are you 300 to 400 million dollars a month sounds like a lot, although I have no I don't have in front of me what that is compared to, say, alcohol and the LCBOs or whatever. So um, when you look at this, are, do you say, you know what, I, I'm not really worried about that much cannabis being consumed because I think, again, if it's legal and we know what's in it, that's going to be fine. Or are you a cautionary, you know, someone on the side going that, that seems like an awful lot. Like I kind of thought, and then you say, I, I, I don't know if we want that many people smoking pot. What, what do you take on that? Well, ju just to give you some context to start, Scott, the, the alcohol sales are $2 billion a month on average and don't really change very much. And so to, to put that in context, it is a, a pretty small fraction 
um, compared to alcohol. Um, but your, your bigger question one is one that's right on, and that is, to what extent should we be worried or should we be uh, patting ourselves on the back? And I do think it's it's too early to tell exactly. I think that um, I, I'm of two minds about this. One mind says, on the whole, it seems like the regulated cannabis uh, system is working as intended, if not necessarily having some of the uh, effects in terms of reducing youth use that were expected. But I'll tell you what does give me pause. And that's that the reality is um, in our clinical programs, we do see extremely high rates of cannabis use among people seeking treatment or with other mental health conditions who are in treatment. And so there can be very different perspectives that you get looking at the population as a whole versus people who are in need of care. And I do see very high rates among people who are in the, the mental health system. Uh, in our young adult substance use program here at St. Joe's, we see extremely high rates of cannabis use. And indeed, that's the, the number one drug that people are that our young people are, are seeking treatment for. So I, I see two realities happening simultaneously. And one is that there are population trends that are generally positive, And even when they're not positive, they are by no means dramatically negative. Um, and then there are trends within subpopulations of people who are seeking care that make me care uh, by no means think that cannabis is a benign substance, by no means uh, think that it's a substance that can't cause cannabis use disorder or addiction to cannabis, and by no means make me think that it's safe and of benefit for uh, people, you know, for, for all people and, and for many conditions. So I, I really am still very much of two minds when it comes to, to cannabis uh, in this legal world we live in. Dr. James McKillop, the uh, professor at Mac and director of the Peter Bora Center for Addictions Research and having a birthday today. We must let you go so your family can see you and cut some cake. Thank, thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the underlying factors in our criminal justice system is that everybody is supposed to be treated the same, treated equally. Now, whether that has in fact always happened or not is... You can decide whether you believe that or not. Some will, some won't. Some will say, well, they've tried. Some, you know, everyone will have their opinion on that one. Well, there, there was a case, and it involves a Hamilton case, a very famous Hamilton case, or a recent one, that has now got some people talking again. Uh, it, if you'll remember the um, the situation with uh, Yosef Al-Haznawi, who was the young man who was shot, um, and the paramedics uh, we're on trial for not giving him the necessaries of life. And, uh, anyway, the court of appeal heard because the man who shot him was acquitted, was acquitted of second degree murder. The crown appealed that it was an indigenous man. And one of the elements on the appeal was that the trial judge had not allowed the shooter's criminal history to be talked about because that might lead to stereotyping by the jury and could potentially lead to a different verdict. Some people are now saying though, well, wait a second. If other people's criminal history can come in as a matter of credibility, but not indigenous peoples because of a background that has been unfair, is the system really fair anymore? Let me bring in Jeff Manishan. He's a criminal defense lawyer. I know he will have some thoughts on this one. Uh, Jeff, thanks for the time today. Hi, how are you, Scott? 
Well, I'm excellent. This is, look, every time you come on here, it's generally because there's some uh, strange, crazy, bizarre, or interesting twist that's going on. This one, I mean, the Statue of Liberty, I know we're not in the States, but has her eyes covered because the whole idea is justice is supposed to be equal and balanced for everybody. And here we have a case where the Court of Appeal has said, well, it doesn't really have to be equal for everybody because the background isn't equal for everybody. Therefore, we have to balance this off a bit. Is that, is that a fair way of describing what they're sort of getting at? Well, we'll go back and say the Statue of Liberty actually doesn't have a blindfold on because she needs to see the higher, the tired, the hungry the masses that she wants to uh, allow into the country to protect them. Lady okay. Justice, on the other hand, Thank you. Okay. is considered All right. to be yep. impartial and treat everybody without any preconceived notions or biases. All right, you got okay. me. Thank you. Yes, good correction. Uh, that's number one. Number two, in terms of the summary, it's not the case, Scott, that this was one in which the trial judge didn't allow any questions about the accused record. That's not what this case was. Okay. What this case was, was the trial judge limited the areas that the, the convictions of the Crown could ask about. Okay. A lot of them the Crown was allowed to ask about. This person was 19 at the time of trial. He had accumulated a lot of convictions when he was a young person. And some of those included convictions for assault. And he had one as an adult for an assault. He also had convictions for other offenses like breach of probation, possession of stolen property, break and enter theft, and mischief. And the judge did allow cross-examination on a whole bunch of those, about 14 convictions in all. So what the judge didn't allow was cross-examination on the assault convictions, several of which were as a young person, one as an adult. The judge didn't do that. So there's our factual story to begin with. But this was, so was this then, um, because was, was the exclusion of the, of part of it because of systemic discrimination against indigenous people? That that's my understanding of what the reason was. Yeah, that's the case. It was, we'll go back a step, uh, Scott. And again, cause I'm old or at least older, I can give you some historical context. The Canada Evidence Act, and back when I was a Crown, it allowed for it, and basically the defense of the Crown could ask somebody, an accused person, about his criminal record, ostensibly to test the person's credibility. And so back then, if a person was charged with a sexual assault and had a prior conviction for sexual assault, you could ask about it. But it was just for credibility, not to show the person was of bad character and therefore more likely to have done the offense. And a jury would be told, oh, you can only use it for credibility, not to show general bad character. In a case called Corbett, which was back in the 80s, it was argued, just a sec, you can't count on the jury to be able to apply that kind of logical stretching so well. And a trial judge should have a discretion not to allow cross-examination on the criminal record, particularly if the offenses are quite similar to that the accused is facing a trial for, or if they're older and unrelated. Now, if it's an offense of dishonesty, well, that goes directly to credibility, so that's fair game. But the result was in what's called a Corbett application, because that was the name of the case, trial judges got the discretion to limit the cross-examination on prior convictions for an accused person. So this case was a Corbett application. Leave aside the indigenous factors, and it could be argued, look, the accused is charged with the offense of murder. Maybe a jury shouldn't get to hear that he has some offenses of assault when he was a young person. That was part of the defense argument. You know, offenses of dishonesty, break and enter theft, and so forth. Okay, but maybe not the assaults, because they're kind of similar. And also, these are, you know, back when he was a young person. 
But the defense also argued that there were two. There, there was a particular problem, a risk that a jury might get into stereotypical thinking if they heard about the assault convictions, and maybe as well they might be they might not properly take into consideration the accused very serious problems in his indigenous background, a very very difficult upbringing. So they asked the judge to rule out the the assault convictions. That and the judge did. That's what this appeal was about. Would have do we see in because this is this is what a lot of people are pointing to and saying okay but we it's difficult now does this mean that any indigenous person would have this ruled out probably not can but does this also mean that someone of any background black white anything under a similar circumstance could have this ruled out because it could be prejudicial well, the way in which the court looked at it, um, the the uh, a case called Gladue, G-L-A-D-U-E, some years ago recognized very famous, yeah, systemic racism in the Canadian system, and we aren't going to get into problems about not teaching critical race theory, of course, Scott, because we know it is a problem of our heritage. It is a very significant issue, and in fact, there are a variety of ways in which, for someone of Indigenous heritage. The, our criminal justice system will allow for and take into consideration those circumstances, and one of those is unsentencing. So because of that, an indigenous person, indigenous person who may have had this you know, particularly difficult background and experiencing the kind of imp- adverse impact of systemic racism, they will not get the same sentence of some for someone who's non-indigenous. That and I think a lot of people... They subject to the same kind of difficult cultural upbringing factor. Yes, and I think, and this is the interesting part about this, and I wish we had a lot more time, but this is the part about this that I think many people, maybe most, I don't know, but I think many people would say on sentencing, I absolutely agree that if you've committed the crime and if you've been found to be guilty of the crime and it's now time to find your sentence, if you have that difficult upbringing or some story in the background, I, I yeah, that should be factored in because there could be uh, factors that, you know, that, that should be contemplated. The question is, should this come in before you get to sentencing in the trial part? That's, that's really the question here is, is should this only be a sentencing thing or should this be considered in the trial? Well, and in fact, uh, Scott, that's one of the things that the court takes a look at that they recognize there are actually other areas in which we'll call it the Gladue factors can be considered in the course of the criminal justice system. And, and those include bail, for example. They right. include extradition. Um, there are a variety of other circumstances in which the Gladue factors can properly be uh, considered. It's not as simple as just on sentence. Our courts have recognized they can be considered in other circumstances as well. And um, it, the, it was acknowledged, it was conceded by the Crown that gl- the Gladue factors can potentially be relevant in our Corbett analysis, this is like teaching criminal law and evidence 101 when we use case names, but it's handy when we sort of keep those in mind. And so it's for a judge to have to weigh and consider it. And part of this individual's background was uh, was so challenging, was such a problem. Um, that what, what the judge did ultimately was he said, look, I'm going to keep these convictions out. He allowed the, the Crown more room to cross-examine on other aspects of the individual's um, drug activities, um, matters of that sort. They gave him a little more room, you know, more, they gave them more room to be able to challenge that. But, but what they did essentially, Scott, was they extended the potential applicability of gladue factors, just as they come in on extradition, on bail, on publication ban proceedings, 
Ontario Review Board hearings, the psychiatric issues, correctional authorities, they extended it to giving the judge the discretion to consider it in the particular circumstances of the case. What's the background? What are the offenses? How long ago were they? Was it a matter of a guilty plea or not? That, that part of the question would be how probative are they? Did they really show the individual has a significant disregard for the whole criminal justice system? Here the judge look, I'm allowing 14 others. So mm. the jury will get that feeling. You get into the realm of the assaults, they aren't, as prob- they aren't really as probative on credibility, or at the very least. And he said, look, if it wasn't for the factors, I may well have allowed a cross-examination of one or two, area, one or two of these all It's a fascinating topic. I wish we had, as I say, I wish we had a lot more time, because it's, it's a very interesting one, for sure. Uh, Jeff Manish, and always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. Okay, Scott, and by the way, too, we, I, do, I can't recall if this has a chance to go to the Supreme Court of Canada or not. They've got 30 days from the date of the decision to do that. But certainly, this is a significant decision. I think that was the decision was September the 26th. So wait and see if the Crown applies for leave, leave the field of the Supreme Court. So we may not have yet heard the final word. Maybe not. We will be, if we don't, we'll be talking about it again. Jeff Manishin, thank you. Okay, Scott. Good night. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don is here every Monday, by the way, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty and... Uh, Oh, there was something else I was going to introduce you as today, and I can't remember what it was. But um, anyway, lots of things. I'll think of that later on. Uh, thanks for being here. Always appreciate it. Uh, so thanks, thanks. the Toronto Maple Leafs are, uh, they've started their game against the Arizona Coyotes this evening. Um, the Leafs should win this by about 15 goals. Arizona's that bad. However, once again, we are a, we are just a couple of games, three games into the season, and the Toronto Maple Leafs are having goalie problems because the guy they went out and got, one of the guys they went out and got, apparently uh, cannot put on his equipment without pulling something and is now off for a month with an abductor strain or something, Matt Murray. So, Don, I'm going back to a question that I've asked you before and that I simply don't understand. In the NHL, it is so abundantly clear with no argument, I don't think, from anyone, that the most important guy on your team is a goalie. I don't think there's an argument to that anymore. I don't think you can find a team in recent years who hasn't either had a star goalie that succeeded, like the team to succeed, has not even had a star, either had a star goalie or a goalie that's got really hot when they needed him to. And yet it seems like goalie still remains the afterthought for so many teams. Why is this? Well, they're bad general managers. I mean, you need a goaltender, and I've uh, it's well documented. I won some championship hockey, uh, some championship trophies in hockey over the years, and I have, I don't think, ever done it while having the second best goalie in the series, because I know that you need a guy that can win you a game you don't deserve to win, and that lifts the team. And on you can go to a championship. Now, they can't, although Carey Price kind of proves this wrong, take a bad team right to the finals. And Carey Price kind of did it, but they gelled at the right time, Montreal there two or three years ago. But you're right. You really can't win a championship with a second-grade goaltender. And if that's not your priority, I don't know what is. And one of the reasons Ottawa got rid of that kid is because he was injury-prone. And I guess the Leaf brass thought, well, he won't get hurt in Toronto. And you're right, he gets hurt putting his equipment on. Wow. 
I, I just, I, it, it is amazing to me that now I understand that goalies can be late bloomers. I understand that goalies can be um, a bit of a mystery in some cases, but it's just, it's never been clear to me why it is. And I'm just looking at the NHL draft from last year, from this, like this year, this spring. And I have, I'm through the second round here and I haven't hit a goalie yet. Um, we're going to go to the third round before we get to the first goalie. If you can have scouts who can look at defensemen and say, that guy's going to be a good defenseman or look at a forward and say, that guy can be a good forward. It, I fail to understand how you can't possibly find scouts who can spot goalies who have the ability to become great goalies and why. And because of that, you're scared to take one in the early rounds because the guy could blow up in your face. I just, I don't understand how it could possibly be that much more difficult than every other position. Well, Mark Andre, Andre Flory went very high in the draft. First overall. And yeah, that's pretty high. So <laughs> when there's a good goaltender, Carey Price, speaking fifth. To, speaking to the obvious, when there's a good goalie, they go very high, Scott. But if you put into perspective, how many forwards and how many defensemen are needed and how many goaltenders are needed, it it doesn't seem unreasonable that the third or fourth round for what I usually refer to them as goalers is selected just based on arithmetic. So that's, you know, the, the top goalie could go third or fourth unless there's some all-star and then they go high and you're I, right. I'll bet you Pittsburgh, pardon me, Pittsburgh. We're going, boy, if we take a goalie number one overall and he can't play, we're in big trouble. Look at Justin Pogge, the Leafs took. And decided to get rid of Tuka Rask. No, 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 there was a colossal uh, fumble, right? Uh, Justin Pogge, I'm going to have to look him up on Hockey DB or Elite Hockey Prospects, could be playing with us this year. Yeah, I, I, look, there are goalies who are going to f- there are goalies who are going to fail. Uh, unquestionably, there are goalies who are going to fail. There are defensemen who fail. There are forwards who fail. Uh, and yet, we seem hockey anyway seems to be willing to live with the risk of a defenseman failing or a forward failing, but we don't want to take a chance on a goalie because he can fail. I don't. I, I and, and again, I go back to my idea of the scouting of this. Henrik Lundqvist, one of the in the modern era. One of the, what would you put him, top 10 in the last 20 years? Yes. I think, easily. Yep, yep. For sure. He was the 22nd goalie taken in his draft. He was taken with the 205th pick. I, I, don't, I simply don't understand how hockey people who watch the game every single day can't spot a good potential goalie when they can spot a good potential forward or defenseman. Well, here's a... Here might, here might be as interesting a question as we can come up with talking about this stuff, is take a look at the National Hockey League and take a look at the goalies drafted. This is supposed to be our game, and we are woefully short. Canadians, uh, Percentage-wise, yes. Canadians, on the number of goaltenders. I mean, the bigger question would be, why, are we, why does Canada lag behind seemingly, and I don't have the stats in front of me because that's not what I do, I just make it up as I go sometimes, but, you know, uh, you, you take a look at the European goaltenders, like the guys coming out of the Czech Republic and Russia, 
Like, why are those countries? We have more hockey players than anybody, and we have the fewest star goaltenders. Fair point. Uh, per capita, I guess is the correct term. I don't, yeah, I don't the, get it. That's a fair point, although I go back to my point, not to be hammer going on a contest here, but the, those places are eligible for the draft. And they have scouts there, and the scouts still don't oftentimes see them or recognize them as future stars. I just, as I say, I mean, look, we all know, Don, you look at a Connor McDavid or you look at an Austin Matthews, that's easy. All right? You you or I could have scouted those guys. And me, it would be more of a mystery than you because you're in hockey. But, I mean, I could have scouted Connor McDavid and told you, hey, he's pretty good. Or Austin Matthews and says, that's a guy who's pretty good. But when you start going down the list, it just, to me, it seems so unusual that NHL teams will take a risk on a defenseman. And, you know, how many times, Don, in, in the draft, if you're watching the draft, they go, well, you know, he didn't have a good year or he's, he's back from an injury or whatever, but he's, a, he's, he's just, a, it's a great gamble to take on this guy. He's a great gamble. It's a high ceiling guy. Well, why do they take those kind of gambles on people who are high ceiling guys, but we don't see gambles on high ceiling goalies very often, once in a while? That's well, it. I, I can tell you a little bit of the thinking, though, Scott. Like when you see a championship goaltender, like, and, and to answer your question earlier, Detroit is about the last team I think won a Stanley Cup without riding the coattails of a goaltender. Right, Mike then, Vernon. Uh, yeah, Mike Vernon, and there was another one down there, um, not Draper, but another guy down there that won a Stanley Cup for him, who was not in Carey Price or Patrick Waugh's uh, league. But there's lots of times that, that goaltenders will win championships in junior hockey, and the credit goes to a great defense, or they work hard to back check, and they don't get the recognition sometimes that they deserve. And I don't know why we look at things the way we do, but if you look at European goaltenders and probably on poorer teams that are facing 50, 60, 70 shots a game, they say, this kid wins and faces 70 shots a game. So they become superstars over there and why there aren't more scouts over there. And maybe some of the general managers are going, you know, the last thing we need is another European goalie because, sure, there's a lot of great ones, but there's a lot more busts and there are stars, and they're scared of it. I don't know why. Yeah, and we got to run here. I look. I, I'm not of the. I'm not making the case that the first five picks every year should be goalies. I don't mean that at all. It's just there. It's so rare almost now for one even to go in the first round. And when you look at how you know the Leafs are dying for a guy who can now be that guy that they're and and they are out there because they keep the NHL keeps having guys who keep coming out of nowhere and being stars. And it's just, it's, it's bizarre to me that the most important position, the NFL does not have this problem with quarterbacks, not to the same degree. It's still a bit of a mystery. There are quarterbacks who fail, but by and large, the guys who were stars were, were spotted and you knew who they were. It's just goalie is this, I, I don't quite understand why it's so impossible, but you know, apparently it is. Well, uh, let's take a, go ahead. As a, as a former goalie, I can see the sympathy. Well, as a former goalie, there was a reason I was never drafted. <laughs> I, 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 I've I said, saw you play, I don't understand it. Yeah, many times I have pointed out that I was the safest goalie in the world because the puck never hit me. 
So that was uh, that. That was how I played for as long as I did where I did. It was uh, it was pure safety. Never got a bruise. Don, on the weekend, I don't know if you watch college football at all down in the states, but there was a game on between Alabama and Tennessee. Alabama, they always play the third Saturday in October. Alabama had won, I think, 15 years in a row. The game was in Tennessee. Unbelievable game. Tennessee ends up winning 52-49 on a last play of the game field goal, which leads 102,000 or a chunk of the 102,000 in the stadium to storm the field, tear down the goalposts and carry them out of the stadium. Despite the fact that it was rather destructive is there a better fan tradition in sports than fans tearing down the goalposts after a big win i i don't think so if it's done you know i don't know how you do it tastefully or elegantly but it's a pretty neat tradition and i think if you got one hundred and two thousand people in the tv sponsorship you can sure afford to throw them back up again uh, I think it's a pretty cool tradition, actually, and uh, so many of so many of our great traditions are now gone. So that's a fun one. You know, it costs somebody a few thousand bucks to fix it, but there's a cost to entertainment too. Well, I'll, I'm, as I'm as you're talking, I'm thinking about a few other ones that we put on the list. So I, I've got that one at the top of my list. Um, throwing throwing hats on the ice after a hat trick—that's a pretty cool one. Uh, you know, a very Canadian thing. Uh, in baseball, throwing a ball back, a home run ball back that someone on the other team hit. That's kind of a fun one. I just, I, I'm trying to think of the ones that sort of really stand out where you go, wow, it was really cool to see that happen. I wish I had been there for that. And I mean, this one, this one in Tennessee was amazing. Not only did they tear the goalpost down, they then carried them out of the stadium, paraded them up the main street of Knoxville, Tennessee, and threw them into the river, <laughs> which is part of their whole tradition. But I just, it, I, I can't think of another tradition in sports that I, I look at and I go, you know what, that is just the, the most fun, ridiculous, over-the-top thing you could do, that no one gets hurt. Well, and, and if you remember, uh, even uh, Grapes did it in his intro for uh, Coach's Corner, when Detroit used to throw squid on the ice. Yes, the octopus, yes, that's a good um, one. And allegedly yanking him out of the Detroit River, which I find a little questionable. I don't know how many <laughs> octopi are actually in the Detroit River. But I can tell you, I, re- I remember um, a referee in a senior game in, um, actually it was lining the senior game in Delhi and the Mudcats. And in a playoff game, traditionally they would throw a Mudcat on the ice that had clearly been in the freezer and had more slime and scum on it. And they... <laughs> They threw they threw it on the ice, and I was a junior linesman. I think I was eighteen or nine, probably eighteen at the time. And the referees said, "Pick it up," and I said, "I'm not picking it up." Look, you could just see the slime all over it. So I went down, and the kid wouldn't give me a shovel. So I grabbed a pylon. My sense of humor, I come up with the pylon on top of it and said, "Play around it," because I'm not picking it up. And the other linesman grabbed it and threw it in the zamboni pile. And then as I went on to referee. They, I, what I then learned is that they were actually generally throwing, throwing them at the referee. I was safe as a linesman, but perhaps not as a referee. But that was always a lot of fun. I mean, they, they never hit you, but it was a bit of a tradition. And it didn't hurt anybody unless you were the poor rookie linesman like me that wouldn't pick it up. So, there, I mean, there's one. But they used to take goalposts down all the time back yep. in the 80s. 
and stuff like it that. Was common, but everybody's yeah. uh, seems to be more prim and proper now, and you can't tear anything down unless it's a statue of somebody you thought did something inappropriate 200 years ago. So I'm glad to carry on doing that. I can't think of a lot, whole lot of other ones. I mean, they well, one other one down, right? Right. They you want to see that? Yeah. That's one where you tear that down. Uh, one that just came to mind while you were talking again was, and I don't do it anymore, but I loved it back in 1990. When was it? The first year the Florida Panthers went on the run to the Stanley Cup final, and every time they scored, they got the oh, ice through the rat plastic the rats, which was a story from a player who had caught a rat in the dressing room, and the rat had not ended well. Um, but the fans all like just littered the ice with rats. That was a good one. And you know what, those, and the NHL team's probably going, you know, we don't condone this and everything. I mean, where'd all those plastic rats come from? Somebody outside selling them for five bucks. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. I think that was before they got their new building and it was probably like WHA arenas and everything, and probably where Phoenix is playing this year. Just a kind of a rat infested old dump. So, oh, by the way, you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, you, you think the Leafs will probably beat them like 12, 13, 2. The the Leafs played Arizona twice last year, I think I heard, and they didn't beat them. Yeah, and they have not well, played a playoff contender yet. Anyway, yeah, I said should. I, I said should. I didn't say would. I said should. Uh, okay. But but yes, the the other thing as I was as we go here, so when you tear down the goalposts and parade it down the main street after a huge win, I'm just I, I I'm trying to picture a Maple Leafs winning a playoff series finally after what it'll be 19 years this year, if they could win a playoff series this year, I kind of would love to see a whole bunch of fans run onto the ice, rip the net off its posts and carry it out of the arena and down Young Street. That would be kind of cool. be kind of fun. They're never going to do it. They'd get arrested, but it would be, it would be kind of fun to see that happen. Something something new, something that shows excitement. I don't know. I I, lo- I I know that the, it costs, as you say, a few thousand bucks. I loved watching that. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was great. But I don't, I don't know, Scott, as there's anything in hockey you can do now. I remember, you know, lining in Niagara Falls and Brantford and everything else was a linesman. You could jump up on the glass. I remember Ron Finn used to do it. The NHL did it, but we'd bail out. But now the glass is like 75 feet high. I don't know how, like if you got on the ice in NHL arena now, you'd have to go through the bench or you'd risk your life because you'd be dropping, not 75 feet as I sarcastically say it, but you'd be dropping 18, 20 feet. So that's not going to happen. But it would be, they got to find something to bring some fun back in because that's kind of innocent fun, right? You rip the goal post down and I didn't know this. Uh, and I don't know what if it's like this in all college stadiums. Perhaps you know. Uh, my lovely wife Sue's got me uh, tickets for the outdoor game in Detroit with the Leafs. Yes. At the Michigan Stadium. So I was freezing, and I said, "I'm going to go and get." I was going to get a cup of tea, but I thought maybe I'd get a beer. So I went up and got some beer, and I said, "Where's?" I went to concession and "Where's the beer?" Well, you have to go to the special uh, the kiosk over there. I said, "Why?" They said, well, we don't sell beer at college games. I didn't know they don't sell alcohol at those games, or at least they didn't in Michigan. So uh, n- I, Maybe not, but Don, there is um, entire breweries monthly outputs set up in the tailgate outside. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Have, 
102,000 people. I think have got it figured out. I'm not yeah. suggesting they're not amply supplied somehow, but I, I, I was absolutely astonished that you couldn't buy it in the stadium, at least in Michigan. But you're right, yeah. they're generally pretty well oiled by the time they get in there. Uh, yeah, there there is no shortage. Whatever whatever the uh, the local brewer is for that particular area, they've uh, they've figured it out. Anyway, uh, send me a note, Radley at nine hundred chml dot com. Is there a better tradition in sports than the tearing down of the goalposts? I put that one at the top of the list, but I'm 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 open to other ones for sure. Don, I got to tell you, I am uh, like you are uh, a fan of the CFL. Have been a fan of the CFL. I'm I must tell you though that. Uh, the comparison with the NFL, and, and I have long said the NFL and the CFL love them both. It's okay to like them both. I'm having a harder time, though. The the NFL game these days, honestly, just more often than not, for whatever reason, seems more exciting. The Ticat game on the weekend was thrilling. That that was not that was the that was not what I'm talking about, but there are some stinker NFL games, most of them apparently on Thursday nights now. But by and large, if you tune in on an NFL game, it's going to be an exciting game. You're almost sure. I, I'm not sure what the CFL has to do to try and get back to being the exciting league, but I think it's losing that fight right now. Well, they're all quarterback-driven leagues, right? And some of the NFL teams, like the, uh, the Bills in Kansas City, had two of the premier quarterbacks. So, you know, and, and here's where I think we get a little bit confused. Not confused, but there are so many NFL games compared to how many CFL games there are a week. It's easier to spot the dogs, but I understand what you're saying. And back, not that well, maybe that long ago. I don't want to go to Russ Jackson, but you go to Doug Flutie and you go to Warren Moon, and I'm, I'm going back 30, 40 years ago. But it's a quarterback-driven league. We have a bigger field. Um, and if you've got the good quarterbacks, the CFL can be as exciting as anything. But more, we, it, more. It, used to, it used to dine out on 36-42 games. And on that big field, when you're having scores, you know, in the teens and in the low 20s, it's hard to make it exciting. I, I totally agree with you. But it, it may be a phase we're going through, but there were, a, there were times when the CFL would and the Grey Cup would blow away the Super Bowl. And the regular Many times. would do the Many same times. thing. And I think that uh, the CFL, and no fault of their own, it's not like they're saying, well, why don't we take Radley and Robertson to quarterback the team because we don't care about those guys. But... The, uh, the the money discrepancy now, back in the era that I'm talking about, Scott, there you know, the quarterbacks Flutie could make probably four or five hundred thousand dollars a year with Bruce McNall and, and John Candy and Gretzky had him around and you know, they could they, they could pay a lot of money. But the premier guys now, I mean the difference in pay scale, probably to be on a taxi squad in the US versus coming up here in the CFL. And I think less quarterbacks in the U.S. see that as a stepping stone because there's fewer and fewer guys coming here and then going to the NFL. So it doesn't seem to be the feeder system and the dollars don't make sense for those guys. 
and I don't know this, and perhaps you do, you're a sports expert, uh, there may be a, a, a second tier, like the uh, the Raptors have a G League or D League, whatever they call call it, to play in Mississauga. There may be some secondary uh, football leagues in the States where the guys don't have to leave home or don't have to leave the U.S. to make 150 or 200 grand a year to say we're staying home. I don't know the answer. That may be part of the problem. Uh, here's here's something that I looked up today. So there are six CFL teams. See, as you said, on the big field, there was a time when the CFL was the league where it was all about scoring, big scores, lots of open action, lots of amazing catches and all this stuff. Six CFL teams out of the nine this year are averaging 20 points per game. 20 NFL teams are averaging 20 points a game or more. And it's not that, I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the percentages, that's the same, right? It's still, it's two thirds basically of both leagues are averaging that. So it's not that the NFL is ahead. It's always that the CFL was ahead and the NFL was way behind in that. So you always had the advantage that you were the league where all the scoring was happening. And that's the thing. The NFL has caught up now and it's, I believe me, I want the, I want, I don't want bad things for the CFL. I want the CFL to get back to being that league again. I just don't know how you do it because as you say, you now have so many of the quarterbacks that would have come here that are staying in the States or going to an NFL team because they are now playing a much more old school CFL style in the NFL. It's not just hand the ball off anymore. All the guys who are playing quarterback are all playing old CFL style. Yeah, and, and, and no disrespect to your comments, but you said this, uh, the NFL's caught up to the, to the CFL. I would, and you have the advantage of doing some research on these questions because you never tell me what they're going to be before the show. But I'm, <laughs> So I have to kind of, again, make it up as I go, but I'm good at it. And that might be, I don't know if the NFL caught up or the CFL regressed. I would suggest the CFL regressed that pardon me that much that we don't have scores. Like I said earlier, like 42, 39, I yeah. think the CFL scoring is down dramatically, which brings us in line with the CFL or NFL. I don't think the NFL are any better. No, I when I said catch up way down. Yeah. When I said the NFL caught up, what I mean is caught up as far as, playing the style of football caught up to the style, not to the level of play caught up to the style where they've opened it up and where there's so much more passing now and where the, where the quarterbacks are so much more athletic and like, look, Josh Allen was, for example, you mentioned him. He, he is an NFL quarterback, whether it's 1970 or 2022, but oh, yeah. that style that he plays was what the CFL used to be. And the NFL never was. So Absolutely. that style of quarterback would have been here. Uh, take another guy. I mean, would would um, uh, with Baltimore? Um, would he be up? Would he be down playing in the NFL right now? Would he have got a a look? Would he have got a chance? He was a late first round draft pick. Would he have been a guy in the NFL thirty years ago? Possibly, or he might have spent some time up here first and then worked his way back down there. Um, Russell Wilson. There's another guy in Seattle, in uh, Denver now, but who was in Seattle, won a Super Bowl. Would he have been a guy they would have looked at initially in the NFL 
30 years ago? I don't think so. No, probably not, maybe, but probably not. He would have done some time up here. All those great quarterbacks that don't come up here now is having an effect. Well, to substantiate your argument, back in the day, Frank O'Harris, no, I'm really going back, but uh, not 15 years ago, the uh, fullbacks in the NFL were a huge part of the offense, and they, they're almost down to blocker status now. Like, if you got a guy in the backfield that can block so the quarterback can throw, to your point, that it's now becoming a passing league. And in the old days, when Miami were winning, again, d- dating myself, but when they, when they were winning, remember when uh, uh, the Fridge played for Chicago? Yep. Because the running game was such a big part of it. And Perry, they'd give him the ball, and he would just, they'd, there'd be like 14 of the opposition lock onto him. And it was like the guy in the green mile, and he'd just carry them all into the end zone. But the running game in the NFL is not non existent, but it's less of a part of the dominance of the game. And now they're past. And what makes the NFL probably a bit more exciting is when the CFL had the bigger field and there was more room for the receivers, Garney Henley and these guys to run around. And um, I'm trying to think of a couple of recent Ticat guys who were great receivers, Darren Flutie, not very recent. But those guys were big parts of your game and the running game, the component. But the NFL now, they are a big part. Like the, the passing game is such a big part of it. And the athletes are so superior to what they were 30 or 40 years ago in every sport, the National Hockey League and every other sport. And they're doing it almost looks like they're playing com- compared to the CFL in your rec room. It's a smaller thing. And those guys have pinpoint passing. And your comparison to uh, Allen and Buffalo, I-, I watched a bit of the game yesterday, where he leaped over a guy trying to tackle him. That's old CFL stuff. That's yep. how good these athletes are. They're tremendous. And that's why guys look like, um, oh, boy, here we go. Can't remember anything anymore. Um, remember when the 49ers were winning um, all those Super Bowls? Uh, who was the yep. quarterback, the great quarterback? Well, but, Montana or Young? Well, both of them. But Montana probably ran for about seven yards a year. And now these guys, you know, they're liable to get 30, 40 yards a game as a quarterback gaining yards. Montana dropped back to the pocket, and he stayed there, and he was excellent, obviously. And he was great at what he did, but he never had to run anywhere. You get these great big guys now, like like that Allen is seven foot fourteen. He's a huge <laughs> man. And he he can throw he can throw a spiral like Scott Radley. I mean he picks those. Oh yeah! They make it look easy. They make it look like they're just tossing it to the guy, and you know it's going seventy miles an hour. That ball and those receivers are so outstanding. But it looks like, compared to the CFL fields, it looks like they're playing in your rec room. Yeah, it's very it's, compact it's, and very exciting. They have to find. I, and again, I I want the CFL to be. I, I I don't wish poor things on the CFL. I really don't. I but I. I it just, it's becoming more and more obvious. They've got to find something to make you tune in and make you watch because the NFL is playing the style that made the CFL so great and so watchable for so many years. They've stolen the style, quite honestly. 
and, and they're doing it better right now. They're doing it better. Guys like you, guys, I, I agree with 100%, Scott. Guys like you and I want the CFL to be relevant in Canada. And it's, with the style of play, it's becoming a bit more of a challenge to make it relevant because the NFL is, the NFL is the NFL, right? And there's all kinds of guys I know that are football fanatics. I mean, I, uh, I I never golf on the weekends, but I golfed on Sunday, and the guy I golfed with, we were going to go in for lunch, and we never do that either, but it was the end of the year wrap-up thing. And he said, I'm not going in, I'm going home to watch the NFL. And he was born in England, but he's an NFL fanatic. And there are all kinds of people that j- are just glued to their TVs for like 12 hours watching the NFL. And you can like both. I'm not a fanatic on either one of them. I do enjoy the Thai Cats. I do watch uh, CFL. But you know what? There are people that are fanatics about it. And you, you're right. You can absolutely love both games. But the CFL is not providing the entertainment value that it did 10 years ago. No, I, 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 yeah, we got to run. I, I have, I, same thing. That. Same thing, Don. I've said there's, I don't, I've never understood the argument that says you can only love one or the other. That if you like the NFL, you have to say the CFL sucks. Or if you like the CFL, you have to say, oh, the NFL is stupid. I've never understood. You can enjoy both. But with every single game for both leagues now on your TV, you do have to start to pick some spots because you don't have, most people anyway, endless time. And, this is the this is the thing now. It's not about one of them is great and one of them is terrible. It's one of them right now is more entertaining, and I really hope the other one figures out how to catch up and and stay there. Uh, listen, we got to run. Always appreciate it, sir. Thank you for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. I guess we're going to not come back next week because of the election. Yeah, we have an election next Monday, so you will uh, you'll have a week off to uh, either lick your wounds or pop the champagne. We'll uh, we'll find out afterwards if uh, which one it was. But appreciate it, Don. Well. There'll be no champagne popping, but anyway, thanks a lot, Scott. I enjoyed it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.